Well, we're going to be meditating uh, this evening on what the book of Proverbs has to say to us about our words. And it shouldn't come as a surprise to know that Proverbs has, after wisdom, more to say about our speech than it has to say about anything else. And that, as I say, is not surprising. We spend, it's estimated, one-fifth of our time speaking. Maybe some of us spend more than one-fifth of our time speaking. Uh, But we, in general, spend that amount of time, and we are, in effect, writing a book of 50 pages every day with the words that come from our lips. That's quite a thought, isn't it? What kind of book are we writing with our speech We're aware of the impact that books of different kinds can have. I mean, there are some books that we simply wouldn't have in our homes because they are demeaning, they pollute the mind. But there are books that lift the spirits, that encourage us, that fire the imagination. What kind of book are we writing with our lips, with our speech? Proverbs warns us that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So although we can, we can dismiss our speech as mere words, that would be a grave mistake. It would be contrary to the uniform testimony of the scriptures that our words are incredibly important. Mere, uh, mere words, we say, but that is far from the truth. Uh, there's a story about, a true story about uh, a Russian, uh, Conrad Ruliev, who was sentenced uh, to be hanged uh, for his part in an unsuccessful uprising against the Russian Tsar Nicholas I, sentenced to be hanged on, uh, in December 1825. But when they were hanging him, the rope broke and Ruliev fell to the ground, bruised and battered, but alive, and he got up and said, in Russia, they do not know how to do anything properly, no, not even how to make a rope. And normally, when this happened, you were given a pardon. But when a messenger was sent to the Tsar to know what he wished to do, uh, Nicholas asked, what did he say? Uh, Sire, the messenger said, he said that in Russia, they do not even know how to make a rope properly. And so the Tsar said, well, let the contrary be proved. The poor man did not get his pardon. Illustration of the power of words that are spoken even lightly. Words have, according to the scriptures, they have power because of two different kinds of ability. They have an intensive power. They have power to go deep uh, within and to do either good or ill. Words get under our skin and into our heart. Our emotions are affected by people's words. Sarcastic words that can mock a person, belittle a person, lacerate like a sword. Good words have the effect of lifting the spirit. When somebody affirms you, when somebody uh, points out something that you've done which has been kind or good, uh, it lifts your spirits. Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Words can have the effect of confirming within us uh, our convictions and our attitudes. Let me explain what we mean by that. When you verbalize something that you may be feeling, 
it strengthens you in that direction. For example, you might have somebody that you find difficult to get on with. Now, you could improve that relationship by doing kind deeds for that person so that the relationship begins to go in a positive direction. Alternatively, you could verbalize negative attitudes. You know, I loathe that guy. He is the meanest, he is the lowest character I have ever met. Have you ever come across anybody as despicable with him as, as he is? You speak the words and your convictions in relation to that person take shape. Your words shape your attitudes. So they have this intensive way of affecting us, but also extensively. Not only do they go deep within uh, me as an individual, but they also they have a scattergun effect. They have a widespread impact on people around us. A scoundrel plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. 16 27. We, we probably think of gossip when we think of the ability of words to spread and to cause damage over a wide area. Proverbs uh, speaks about uh, gossip in this way. A perverse man stirs up dissension and a gossip separates <coughs> close friends. So our bad words can have an impact over a wide area, but also your good words can have an impact over a wide area also. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Okay, so the idea is of of a fountain bubbling up and the water spreading out to touch others and bring healing, to bring life in other places. Now, we've already come across the idea of of a fountain, haven't we? When in Proverbs 4.23, we said that was a key verse in Proverbs. Above all, guard your heart, for it is the fountain of life. (coughs) The heart is the idea of a fountain. Here we're speaking about words uh, coming like a fountain to bless others. And Jesus, when he spoke about words in the New Testament, spoke about the, the heart being the source of our words, in fact, our words being an indicator of what the heart is like. It is, he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Right? Your words don't reveal anything that wasn't there already. They show up what's inside. I tell you, Jesus said, that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every Careless word he has spoken. By your words you will be acquitted. And by your words you will be condemned. Now I want us to to think. I want us to, to meditate together on what Proverbs is teaching us about our conversation. And I want us to, to think about it like this. We can, we can track words along the line of the history of redemption. Okay. History of redemption simply means the, the line that goes from original goodness and creation to the fall, sin spoiling things, and the renewal that comes through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we can think of uh, the original goodness of our speech and then of how sin has 
stained our speech and how grace comes to renew speech in the lives of those who know Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. So let's think together about good words because the things that Proverbs says about good words will be true of the speech that was spoken in Eden before the fall. We've been thinking about the, the power of words. We have been made, we've been created as communicating people. And you and I want to speak with others. We want to communicate because we've been made in God's image. As parents, we want our children to speak. Parents, when they have their, 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 their children, they're longing for that day when their children will begin to speak. To say their first words. Then there comes a point where we wish they would speak less. (laughs) But if they said nothing, it would be even worse if there was a deathly silence. A crushing silence. That's an awful thing. So communication is really important. And it's important because we've been made in the image of a God who communicates. God is not a solitary God. He is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. A communicating God. So when we read of how God made the world, it's not for nothing that we are told that he made it by the power of his word. God spoke and worlds leapt into being. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And when the second person of the Trinity, our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus comes to earth, what is he called? He's called the Word of God. God's good word to us. God is a God who communicates and so he makes us in his image as people who communicate and before sin spoiled things there was good communication between humans. There was communication between humans and God and that was good and always upbuilding and wholesome and there, was word, there were words spoken between Adam and and Eve to each other, and they were good words. And Proverbs gives us an insight into what these words would have been like, what good words are. And Proverbs tells us, first of all, that good words are honest words. They tell the truth. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. 24-26. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. Now, we hardly need to say it, but truth, truthful communication is vital in our relationships. If we don't speak the truth to one another, there's no basis for relationships. We can't trust each other. We can't make commitments to one another. We can't plan to do things together unless we have confidence that people speak the truth. So the lie is a dreadfully destructive abuse of speech. So the good words are true words. And secondly, good words are gentle words. Gentle words. They are kind rather than harsh. And Proverbs tells us that kind words have power. They have a power to diffuse situations where Wrath, where anger could could be stirred up, and where there could become a, a violent situation. 
Gentle words, Proverbs tells us, are marked by restraint. They're marked by a desire to return good for evil. Proverbs 12, verse 16. A fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. And then a beautiful one, chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Gentle words are motivated by a desire to promote peace, to smooth the way amongst people in their relationships. There's no desire uh, to belittle people in gentle words. Only a desire to build people up. Gentleness in our speech means that we won't speak impulsively. 29 verse 20. Do you see a man who speaks in haste? There's more hope for a fool than for him. To be passionate in in general is a good thing. To to be passionate, to to feel things strongly, energetically, is a good thing. A passionate person in the service of the Lord uh, can do great things. But sometimes the trouble with the passionate person is that they can be (coughs) ill-considered in their speech. And Proverbs is saying to us not to be hasty in speech, lest we turn out not to be gentle and ill-considered in what we say. And I suppose in our day, it's not just the, 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 the word from our lips, but... We communicate in other ways too, don't we? And think of how, how readily we communicate with emails and how often it is that we can press the send button and it's like the toothpaste tube, isn't it? The email goes out and we think, oh, if only I hadn't sent that. Uh, the gentle email turns away wrath. Now, when Proverbs is saying that good speech is gentle speech, it's not saying for that reason that uh, good speech is, is mealy-mouthed speech, which uh, is always uh, giving in in a desperate attempt to avoid confrontation. Proverbs recognizes that gentle words will often prove to be powerful words. Gentle words will be the words which break down someone's stubbornness often. And there's a very striking uh, verse, 25, 15 Through patience, a ruler can be persuaded. Here's this lovely, vivid picture. A gentle tongue can break a bone. In other words, it breaks through resistance, through stubbornness. The gentle tongue, the power of the gentle word. So good words are true, they're gentle. Proverbs also teaches us that good words are apt words. It's interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of emphasis on on your words being apt, being appropriate, being fitting. Proverbs is painting the the picture of the the man or woman of God in his or her speech being like a wordsmith, a craftsman of words. So that the word that we speak is appropriate to the occasion. It's expressed well. 
And there's that lovely verse again, 25 verse 11, which in itself mirrors what the, pro- what the proverb is communicating. It's beautifully expressed. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Beautiful verse, 25 verse 11. Then again, chapter 15, verse 23. A man finds joy in giving an apt reply. And how good is a timely word. So people listen to those whose words are spoken at the right time. Words which have an appropriateness about them. Which fit the case in point. There is something which is aesthetic, if you like, in that. People will listen. They will take heed. An apt word. Now that goes on to imply the fourth quality, which is that words are used sparingly. People who, people who are full on in their speech, who are always talking, well, by the nature of it, they are going, they're not always going to be speaking aptly. Because they're going to be speaking all the time. And some of the things that they say will not be suited, will not be fitting to the occasion. And so there's much advice in having caution, having economy with your words. Proverbs typically makes the point with, with that comedy in chapter, verse, chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Okay. So say nothing and people will think you're pretty smart. That's what the Proverbs is saying. But elsewhere, uh, Solomon is warning us that if we're in company that is hostile to us, then it's a wise thing to refrain from speaking because sometimes if you speak, all you're doing is you're giving ammunition to those who want to do you down. So very practical. Chapter 10, verse 14. uh, Wise men store up knowledge, but the mouth of a fool invites ruin. And then, a very sobering warning. 10, verse 19. Where words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. So, good words are truthful. Good words are gentle. Good words are apt. Uh, Good words are used sparingly. And the result of this good speech, this speech that would be found in Eden, is that others are blessed. The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life. And I think it's significant, isn't it, that the the picture of a tree of life is used uh, of these words, of healing words. We're we're brought back to Eden, uh, where we first encounter the tree of life. And in Eden, the words that were spoken were words of healing. Until, secondly, Satan, the accuser, comes in and speaks words which distort, words which are not true, words which are deceptive, words which woo our first parents away from the Lord. Stained words. And today, our sinful nature is, is shown very clearly, isn't it? By our speech. I think as we reflect on speech, um, that many of us would acknowledge that this is one of the areas where we struggle. Our speech is a battlefield. 
James vividly, in his letter, he vividly describes the situation. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. So James is saying what we've been saying already, that our, our convictions, our attitudes are shaped by our speech, and that what we say goes on to wreck the lives of those around us. It's like a wildfire. And Proverbs ties the matter to the heart. Uh, there's a couple of verses which relate our heart to our words. The heart of the righteous weighs its answers, but the mouth of the wicked gushes evil. Chapter 15, verse 28. Chapter 16, verse 23. A, man, a wise man's heart guides his mouth, and his lips promote instruction. Proverbs is saying what our Lord would say later, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, again, uh, the heart is an important word in the book of Proverbs. We've thought about what the heart means in Proverbs. The heart is not the organ inside our, our chest cavity that pumps blood around the body, uh, although it is that. The heart is the, the core of our personality. The heart is our emotions. The heart is our mind. The heart is the, 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 the principle within us that directs our lives. That's important for us to, to be reminded constantly that our, our communication problem, our speech problem, our word <coughs> problem is not a problem that can be tackled by techniques. It's a problem in which our heart must be addressed. Now often when we're thinking about speech and communication and relationships, people do address it superficially. And the advice that is given, sometimes in churches, is superficial advice that ignores the source in the heart. And so people say, well, count to ten before you speak. Or remember to be considered. Or remember to accent the positive. And these things are all very well. But until we go to the heart, we're not addressing the issue as the Bible instructs us to. And the issue is this. Do I really love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul and strength? That's it, isn't it? Is he first in my heart? Or are there idols in the heart? Are there things that I love more than the Lord? Because if, if the Lord is the one I love with all my heart and soul and strength, then I will love my neighbor as myself. Then my speech will fall into place. But if I have something else as a rival to God in my heart, then my speech will reflect that. This is the battleground. Remember we were looking at the, the battle between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. And Satan is trying to, to prize our Lord away from trusting obedience to his father. 
and the temptation to turn the stones into bread. And Jesus says, it is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Jesus will go on later to speak about bread as what gives you most satisfaction in life. What is your bread? Do not work for food that spoils, Jesus says, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus is your bread. Jesus is your bread. If his uh, person, his delight in you, the warmth of his fellowship, the thrill of his purpose for your life, is if these things are what give you fullest satisfaction, then you are not going to be disappointed in life. Uh, you will be able to accept some of the twists and turns, some of the brickbats in life as being sent by a Lord who has your interests at heart, if he is your bread. But if other things are your bread, if you look to, to physical things, if you look to pleasures, if you look to your personal agenda, then you will be disappointed because that kind of bread spoils if Jesus is not your bread. Your heart will not be right with God and your speech will reflect that because it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so, your words will be resentful when others thwart your plans. You'll blame others for your circumstances. And in your desire for the approval of other people, you may be tempted to be less than honest. Paul Tripp, um, who was working at Westminster in the counselling centre, uh, wrote a book called The War of Words. And in the book, he tells of a, a counselling situation that he had with a lady who came to him uh, who had, he was, she was married to a man who was actually a very bad husband. He was a man who was angry, he was manipulative and controlling. And meantime, she dreamt of the ultimate husband and became embittered by the fact that there were women in the church that had marriages that were better than her own and she said that she could no longer go to church to worship. She felt God had forsaken her and Paul Tripp tried to make her understand her identity in Christ and the love of the Lord for her and whilst he was doing this, while he was in mid-flow, she shouted, stop! banged the table and said, don't tell me anymore that God loves me. I want a husband who loves me. Tripp writes, I learned something that day. To the degree that you've based your life on something other than the Lord, to that degree, God's love and the hope of the gospel will not comfort you. That angry lady's words revealed the true love of her heart, her dream, the bread her heart craved. Her words that day revealed that despite her profession of faith, she really saw a king who do her bidding.
See, out of the overflow of her heart, her mouth spoke. Words stained by sin. Finally and briefly, words redeemed by grace. How is our speech redeemed? Well, we had that wonderful passage uh, from Isaiah 6 earlier on, where Isaiah is in the temple. And Isaiah has this vision of God in all his glory. He is conscious of his sin. And Isaiah, who was a a cultured man, a man of letters, realises that the point at which his sin is most acute is his speech. Woe is me, I am ruined, he says, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord. He was convicted at the point of his speech. Maybe that's how God works in our lives on occasions. Maybe that's how God is working in somebody's life tonight. Maybe you are aware that your speech reflects your heart and you're not right with God. And you need to be made right with God because your speech is just an indicator of what the heart is like. And you need to be cleansed. And you need to be cleansed by the cross of Calvary. And when that seraph went and took coals that went and touched Isaiah's lips, the coals were taken from the altar, the place of sacrifice, that points us to the cross of Calvary. Points us to the man who hung on the cross, of whom it was said, never man spake like this man. That man whose dying words were bringing peace to a thief on one side of him and offering forgiveness to those who were carrying out his execution. The one on the cross whose cries to his father are met with silence in that awful hour. It's from that altar, the altar of Calvary that the coals are taken that cleanse my lips and your lips. How does that happen? How does that work out in practice as we come to a conclusion? Well, first of all, when we come to the cross, we're reminded that we are not stuck in the past. The cross brings us hope. Cross tells us that we don't need to wallow in regret, that we can have forgiveness, we can embrace gospel hope, we can have cleansed lips. The gospel speaks hope. Secondly, the cross reminds us of the need to repent, to acknowledge our idolatry that we have had other gods before the one true God. We've had bread in our lives that we've looked to which spoils rather than endures. And we need to find our rest in Jesus alone. Is Jesus your peace? Is Jesus the bread of life to you? Sometimes people say, well, Jesus feels distant to me. And that's not surprising sometimes if we are keeping Jesus at arm's length, you know. If we're not meeting with Jesus, people who are in love 
meet with one another as long as they can and they speak to one another and they listen to one another. And if we want to know the closeness of Jesus, we'll meet him often in the Bible and we'll long to meet him with others who gather in his presence. And so we repent of making other things bread rather than Jesus. And thirdly, we make the cross the source and the shape of our speech. The cross means that we die to the old and we live to the new. We put off the old and we take on the new. And we look at the fruit of our lips and we ask ourselves, what effect does my speech have? Does it reflect the cross? Are others encouraged by my speech? Are they more hopeful and loving? Do my words speak much about Jesus? Do they lead to forgiveness, to reconciliation, to peace? Are they patient words, gentle words, kind and self-controlled? So we put off the speech that's unfitting and we put on the speech that is fitting. And in doing that, we make specific commitments. Think about the people that you have a tendency to injure by your words. Or those you speak negatively about. Or the occasions when you're least Christ-like in your words. And ask the Lord to enable you to deal with those specific people. Those specific situations. A new commitment needs to be as specific as the sin that we confess. Jesus, keep me near the cross. The cross is what heals our lips, the altar of the cross. This is the battlefield. This is where, if we're really honest, this is where it's toughest. Praise God for the power of the Holy Spirit. Praise God for the cross that brings us hope. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wisdom to us again in Proverbs. Lord, our words are so important. And like Isaiah, we cry out, Woe's me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. Lord, we pray that you'll cleanse our lips from all that pollutes and hurts, all that is harsh rather than gentle and kind. Lord, may, may our lips always remind others of Jesus and may they be epistles sent from him. We ask in his name. Amen. Now we're going to close with uh, a hymn. Uh, Francis Ridley Haberdell, Lord, speak to me that I may speak in living echoes of your tone as you have sought. So let me seek your wandering children lost alone. Oh, lead me, Lord, that I may lead the stumbling and the straying feet. And feed me, Lord, that I may feed your hungry ones with manna sweet. Lord, speak to me. Thank <laughs> you.
understandings. Lord, speak to me that I may speak and living echoes of your tongue as you have sought so May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest upon you now and forevermore. Amen.